electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. A wobbly month for markets. As the Dow and S&P slide today, Morgan Stanley is taking U.S. equities to underweight. They'll join us to explain why just ahead. Meanwhile, the president's tax plan includes more than 80 tax hikes and changes to fund the $3.5 trillion budget. But there are really three that raise the most money and have the biggest impact on corporate America. We'll break them down. And the NFL season does begin this week, and a number of betting names could benefit. We've got all the stocks to watch. But we start with the markets today. NASDAQ outperforming, Dom, but it's Bitcoin getting all the headlines in the past hour or It so. is. I mean, Kelly, the, the trade for the NASDAQ right now is interesting because it's only up about a a quarter of 1%. And normally I wouldn't make too much hay of this, but, but I get to put the golden star up there because it did hit a record intraday high at some point earlier on today. Holding above just below that 15,400 mark right now. So we'll watch that. The Dow Industrial is down about one half of 1%, 200 points. The S&P off by about one quarter of 1% as well, 45.27 the last trade there. If you take a look at that Bitcoin that Kelly was just referring to, we had a sharp drop. You can see here at one point, it was, though oh, getting down towards the 42,000 mark here. We've bounced back well off those session lows. However, this all comes amidst this idea that El Salvador is going to start taking Bitcoin and using it as legal tender. They bought about $21 million, not even that much million dollars worth of it to facilitate that transaction. So watch Bitcoin prices. And then Apple and Netflix, both of these stocks get their golden stars because both of these hit record highs in trading so far today. Netflix being driven by an analyst price target upgrade over Atlantic Equities to a street high $780 a share. They think that the subscriber growth in the coming years will be better than they previously estimated. And then Apple has just formally announced, we've heard it for a while, formally announced that September 14th, Big Apple event, where it's widely expected, Kelly, will get new iPhone models introduced, possibly AirPod models and Air Wa- or iWatch I models, Apple Watch models as well. So both those stocks at record highs. Apple, however, on a year-to-date basis, slightly outperforming the rest of the overall market here in terms of the technology side. Netflix up about 13%. We'll see if that sticks for that streaming trade. Back over to you. I am on an Apple Watch hiatus, Dom. Good for good. you. I, I don't, I've never had one, so I, a hiatus is interesting. It was too essential, let's say. <laughs> I needed a break. Fair enough. I'll probably get the next model. Uh, Dom, thanks very much. It. Let me turn to my next guest, who is saying get ready for more bumpy days like today in the next two months. He's downgrading U.S. equities to underweight due to uncertainty about growth and policy. Andrew Sheets joins me now. He's chief cross-asset strategist at Morgan Stanley. Andrew, welcome. It's good to see you. What is the concern you see policy-wise? Well, uh, good. Uh, it's nice to be here with you. I think the concern is that I think markets are stuck a little bit between a rock and a hard place. In our base case, growth will improve as we go into the rest of the year, and that should push yields higher, especially as the Fed moves towards tapering. But I think you do have some real risks to the outlook um, on that growth side. We do think August data will be very weak when that data is reported in September in the U.S. And so I think that could also worry the market. So I think you have a market that is near the highs has not derated like a lot of other equity markets year to date and is stuck a little bit between the rate picture and the growth picture. What do you mean it hasn't derated like others? 
So we've seen valuations in a lot of other global equity markets come down quite a bit year to date. Um, and and we, see, we think that's normal. That's often what you see happen after a recession. You see markets run up quite strongly. And then what happens is, is that the earnings recover and the valuations come down and those factors somewhat offset themselves. For the S&P 500, the valuations really haven't come down like they usually do when you get past that initial growth surge. And so that concerns us. The fact that you haven't had that usual adjustment yet makes us worried that it might still be to come. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you're sort of seeing this as a lose-lose, if I'm reading this correctly, that you know, if, if growth is fine, yields need to go higher. That could cause a correction. If growth slows, that causes a different kind of correction. Why wouldn't you look at this differently as a win-win, The kind of the old Tepper trade where he says, growth slows, the Fed responds, and we're already seeing that if they delay the taper. And if growth picks up, then it's, you know, how, how is this a lose-lose instead of a win-win for equities? Well, look, it's the right question to ask, because I think in a lot of situations for the U.S. equity market, it has been win-win. This has been an incredible performing market year-to-date over the last year, over the last 10 years. So, I mean, this is not something we, we take lightly. I think these are, are real issues to consider. But I, I think what's different is, I think, on the cyclical side, you know, this quite binary nature of the future of fiscal policy, that, that either we, you know, our policy strategists think either you're going to get a large reconciliation in infrastructure bill or nothing. Um, and so that is quite binary uh, in, in a way that I think is unique. And then on the Federal Reserve side, the fact that you've already seen some major improvement in unemployment, the fact that inflation's already coming back, all those factors make us think the bar is very, very high for the Fed to delay a taper, let alone do more quantitative easing. So I think those factors are different enough um, that make us think that it's no longer that win-win situation. And I know we've been talking big picture, but I actually want to rattle off a couple of the trades here that are your recommendations. These are kind of sophisticated, but for those who want to play this way, I, I just want to make a mention of it. So you're going, and this is the whole cross-asset team, you're saying go long Brazil equities versus MSCI emerging markets. I don't even know the second part of this, but I do understand when you say S&P 500 put spread collars, uh, swap those for S&P 500 put spreads as implied volatility levels fall. You're closing your gas oil versus Brent and you're adding three month puts on gold. Uh, is there anything you want to correct there and how I, and how yeah, I explain you, it? You got it, you got it quite right. So I think we think this is a difficult backdrop for gold because usually higher yields and a stronger U.S. dollar, which is what we expect. Are, are not great for gold. If you look back to the last taper in 2013, 2014, gold did very poorly. We think Brazil is an attractive market. It's an equity market where overweight. That is a market where valuations have adjusted a lot year to date. Valuations are down almost 50% in PE. So I think that's a space where there is better value and more of these uncertainties is in the price. All right, we will leave it there, Andrew. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and a lot of different ideas for people. We appreciate it. Andrew Sheets is with Morgan Stanley. Now, while some see risks rising in the U.S., others continue to believe that any recent economic slowdown will be transitory and the expansion will continue. This is kind of the argument debate we were just having. Well, my next guest has some names he thinks will work in either environment. Michael Cagino is president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Michael, it's good to have you. So let's kind of piggyback off of what we were just describing. There's plenty of risks to the upside and the downside here. What are some of the names you think can do well regardless? Yeah, good afternoon, Kelly. Well, I mean, one area that we think long term, and again, we think long term. So, you know, short term anomalies, short term trades, et cetera. And some of the stuff Andrew mentioned in the last segment, I think, is maybe some somewhat short term based on valuation and immediate, uh, you know, situations that may come up. 
Uh, we like natural resources and energy long term. We think there is a growth story happening. We think there's a lot of ground to still make up with respect to resumption of growth. The sky's not going to fall. And we believe that because of lack of investment, lack of global growth, a really strong dollar over the last several years, et cetera, that we're probably at the beginning stages of another commodity upswing cycle. And so areas in energy, commodity metals, et cetera, they had a big run early in the year, but we think they're not done long term. Um, they have pricing power, they, they have some inflation protection, and they generally pay good and increasing dividends and special dividends yeah. um, when times are good. And so we think that long term, it's not a bad place to be right now. And I'll rattle these off. They are all consistent with what you've just been describing. Freeport McMoran, BHP, Rio Tinto, Chevron. Gold is in there as well. You know, I was actually writing about this this morning, this idea that we're creating to some extent an artificial supply shortage because of our environmental goals. So there's a lot of pressure to move away from natural gas and other things. Prices are spiking there. Oil prices are up on the year. Here's my question, though. If we're making a policy choice to move away from fossil fuels, can the stocks continue to benefit? Look at Chevron, which on Friday is facing pressure from engine number one. You know, 2008, we had the global commodity super cycle and all the stocks benefited as a result. Are they definitely going to benefit the same way this time around if they're facing possibly an existential sidelining? Well, you make a great point for, for the these stocks to run. I mean, you're restricting supply. You're basically, you know, so uh, unless you believe that we don't need these materials anymore going forward to run our, our world, then, uh, then there's going to be a price problem there and a supply demand problem, which drives the prices. In the long term, we are generally moving towards greener technologies, et cetera. These companies, though, are at the forefront of some of those moves as well, so they may participate with respect to where where that goes in the future. And right now, we are no way near energy self-sufficient based on green technologies. We just oh, sure. aren't. It's a myth. Yeah, no, and, no. And as a result, we need these companies. Uh, look at with the UK, to, which had to uh, you know bring an old coal plant back online over the weekend. And what was a warm weekend because their wind power dropped. And again, they're, fa they're facing a lot of supply uh, issues. Let me just mention, though, Freeport, McMoran, Rio, uh, I guess to some extent Rio, um, but some of the other plays that you're looking at are more copper, iron ore, and that kind of thing. Where are we in terms of the supply imbalance, if at all, uh, in some of those metals? We think long term there's quite a big imbalance because of global growth and because of the resumption of economies. There was some news coming out of China lately that they're going to support their economy more. I know copper sold off uh, and maybe uh, iron ore did recently on some, some China growth concerns. This stuff is day-to-day -day news. I mean, long term... We had an underinvestment in this cycle. We had underperformance. Um, we had anemic global growth over several years and a relatively strong dollar. A lot of those things will reverse in a growth trade or resumption of a growth trade. And you're going to have, you know, a need for a lot of this stuff going forward. These cycles are generally multi-year in nature. And you mentioned one earlier that lasted, you know, almost a decade. I, I'm not predicting that here, but I could easily see a cycle that could last several years. Um, based on the underinvestment and the and the market dynamics that we had during the 2010s, and so again, we would recommend diversification among a bunch of different investments. But on the equity side, when you look at valuations, these stocks have generally not kept up, and so there's an argument for them as a long-term investor to uh, yeah. to stay here and and ride them. Quick final question, because you have gold here, I just have to ask the obvious. It's only down 5% year to date. It's no disaster. But you see all of the attention that's shifting to Bitcoin. Is that going to supplant what would have been generational demand for gold as a diversifying asset? Is that all going to go to Bitcoin in the future? Is that a risk? 
Well, it's been marketed that way by the Bitcoin industry, but I think there are very big differences between gold and Bitcoin. Um, you know, gold has been around for centuries. It's got a store of value. You can insure it. Um, you can store it. You know where it is. Those aren't always true with Bitcoin. You can't steal gold. It's in COMEX depositories. Um, and as a, you know, Bitcoin is an asset class, yes, uh, just like wine and fine art and gold. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it correlates to gold. It's the same thing as gold or it's going to behave price wise with respect to gold. And, and it's been talked about as a diversifier, as a hedge against stocks and bonds. Bitcoin's run has you know, corresponded with a huge run in equity. So I would hardly say that's a, a lack of correlation. Um, and Bitcoin from its high has been down over 50% this year. And you mentioned gold, um, you know, gold's down 5% after a pretty great run for the last year and a half. So they're not the same thing. And that's not a negative on Bitcoin. We think that digital transactions and currencies are gonna increase, mm -hmm. but the valuation metric, I mean, it's greater fool theory stuff right now. There's no there's no metrics on valuation. And so as long as investors understand that, it's, it's a great asset class if you love volatility. But as a hedge against uh, other things, I don't think we have enough history to make that judgment. All right. Fair enough. Michael, thanks for your time for explaining your uh, positions on all of these. Thanks, Kelly. Michael Cagino with The Permanent Portfolio. Speaking of markets, we're only three weeks away from CNBC's Delivering Alpha, bringing together the best names in the investment community. You don't want to miss these discussions on the critical issues facing investors in today's economy. Register today at DeliveringAlpha.com. Coming up, boosted jobless benefits are over for millions of Americans, but could that actually be a boon to the fast-growing freelance economy? We'll ask the CEO of hiring platform Upwork about who's hiring where, what they're offering, and why work from home may be here to stay. Plus, President Biden's tax plan includes more than 80 changes, but Wall Street is keeping a close eye on a looming triple tax threat. We'll tell you what the details are ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. From full-time to freelance, 2020 saw a boom in freelance workers as many businesses went remote. That's according to a new survey from global freelance hiring platform Upwork. 
As many as 10 million Americans are considering becoming freelancers to give themselves more flexibility. But as companies begin to bring workers back and the competition for top talent intensifies, where does this leave the freelance economy? Joining us now is Hayden Brown. She is CEO of the global freelance hiring platform Upwork. Hayden, it's good to see you again. I'm going to start this off with an observation. It's sometimes a real pain to be a freelancer. <laughs> From tax implications to just the stress of having to constantly line up work. Is it possible that people who dabbled in this over the past year and a half are now going, you know what, maybe the job's just easier. Kelly, I think we're actually seeing the opposite. You know, platforms like Upwork are actually here to make it easy for freelancers. They don't have to look for the next gig. The gig actually comes to them. And what we're hearing from freelancers is they actually feel more secure going through economic downturns and tough times as freelancers because they have a bench of clients that they're working with and they're not exposed to just a single employer and what might happen with that employer. So I think the the ground has really shifted as freelancers are finding that they feel more secure. This actually getting easier and easier to be a freelancer. And it's actually a preference for them to be doing the work this way where they have autonomy, control, yeah. and so many of these benefits versus what full-time employment looks like. And in fairness, most of the people I know who have become freelancers are making more than they were before they left their jobs. To their own great surprise, most thought, you know, I'm, I'm starting a, a different kind of work and it's going to be lower paid. And instead, they're too busy. They're making way more than they would have thought, and they have too many opportunities. So I guess that uh, raises different kind of management issues. Your stock, I believe, is up about 40% this year. So you guys are still building on the 2020 gains. Where is this all going, right? I mean, the, the transformation of the labor force, is that now behind us, or is it just beginning? We are just in the early days of that transformation. You know, this is a trillion-dollar-plus market opportunity that we are unlocking. And, you know, our company had $2.5 billion of gross services volume last year. So it's early innings. And I think the real transformation that's ahead of us is companies figuring out that now they know how to work remotely because they figured that out during the pandemic. This unlocks for them a talent strategy for tapping into new workers like freelance workers who are in different locations and bring new skills to the table. And this is critical because so many CEOs have been struggling with talent and access and talent gaps as key, key blockers for them driving growth. So this is early innings as they use remote work and remote strategies to tap into new types of workers and bring those workers into their core uh, strategies for growth. Uh, another observation that I think you could help explain to me, and I don't know exactly what all the different kinds of freelance work on Upwork are, but one thing I hear more and more about is all of these people who are using virtual assistants from literally places like the Philippines. And I don't know if this is a Fiverr thing or if you, you, you know, you, you go and you explain your email to them and then they, but like every time I turn around now, someone's telling me about their virtual assistant from Southeast Asia. Is this considered, I mean, this is kind of the, the sort of offshoring of white collar jobs, right? That I guess the internet and freelance work is all beginning, but this doesn't, this feels like a different from not phenomenon from what you're talking about. I think this is just one aspect of the many different types of work that can be done by freelancers through a platform like Upwork and others. So what you're seeing, Kelly, is people realizing that when they can work remotely with people, they don't need to have maybe that assistant in the office sitting next to them. They can actually work with somebody through a computer who can do amazing work and maybe even offer benefits because it's a 24 by 7 schedule where they might send a request and then somebody's working on that request overnight and bringing yes. that work you know, ready in the morning. So this is where we're going to see transformation of many types of work as people are using these new skills and capabilities they've learned. And finally, as we sort of look at the economy, the momentum for the whole labor market this fall, we just got the big jobs report. It was a disappointment, but people aren't sure if that's because demand wasn't strong enough for workers or if the supply you know, of workers weren't 
as willing? You know, if it, what can you tell me from just what Upwork is experiencing? What do you think is going on with the labor market? Is it slowing or is it stronger than ever? I think it's stronger than ever. And we are really seeing, you know, demand from clients continues to be there. Freelancers are eager to do the work. But in the macro sense, I think so many businesses haven't realized that freelancers can serve them in many different ways. And there's this misperception that freelancers should only be on the margins of their business or can only do maybe admin support jobs or some of the things that you, you were asking about just a minute ago. And so I think where we're still hoping to see those changes and working to drive those changes are for businesses to realize there's so much more that freelancers can do to solve the skills gaps that businesses are struggling to hire against. You know, they have so many open jobs that are taking six months or more to fill, whereas there's a freelancer sitting on our platform right now ready to do that project literally today. So there's a supply-demand mismatch because people are often looking for those workers in the wrong places. They're looking at these traditional FTE job boards and staffing services when they need to go to where the workers are today, which is platforms like Upwork. You know, it's funny you say that, but we are seeing even more. I think the Wall Street Journal had a piece about this over the weekend that, you know, the the hires are not looking to where the candidates actually are. And, and maybe what you're describing is, is a big part of that mismatch. Hayden, thanks so much for your time. Good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Hayden Brown is the CEO of Upwork. Before we head to break, here's a look at some of the gig economy names and how they've been performing this year. Lyft is outpacing Uber over the past year, despite uh, Uber investing heavily in its delivery business. Uber is actually down 20% since January, while Lyft is hanging on to the green by about 1%. Speaking of delivery, shares of DoorDash have nearly doubled since their public debut in December. But its spending is also going up, jumping 150% in the second quarter as they try to attract workers. Meanwhile, shares of Just Eat Takeaway are down nearly 9% in a year. Remember, their deal to acquire Grubhub was approved by shareholders this past June. And finally, Etsy and Fiverr, I just mentioned Fiverr, they've seen huge gains in the past year as online shopping and freelancing grow more popular. Etsy is down about 13% from its 52-week high, but Fiverr is a bigger laggard, down 45% in the meantime. Others are down between 20 and 35% from their respective highs. Coming up, this stock is up 15% in the past week and jumping 7% today on news. It'll join the S&P 500. We'll tell you what it is and what it's replacing next. And still ahead, it's more than 500 miles from the Pentagon to ground zero in New York. But one group of people is making that walk to honor and support first responders and their families. We'll speak with the CEO of Tunnel to Towers about his journey and the foundation ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a quick check on markets. The Dow was up as many as four points earlier today. It was down 308 at the lows. We're a little bit split between that right now, down 179. S&P's down eight. NASDAQ is up 31. Bitcoin, obviously, has been a big decline over the past couple hours, but it's off the lows. Here are some of the movers. The Internet, yeah, China, inter, no, the Internet ETF, she said, uh, ticker FDN, is hitting a new all-time high, helped by Netflix, Expedia, and others today. Now the Crane Shares China Internet ETF is up more than 4%, boosted by gains in Didi, Alibaba, and Baidu. You can see Didi is up about 5% right now. Still, all of these names are down about 50% from their recent highs. And our mystery chart that we referenced going into the break, 
It's Match Group. The shares up about 6% today after S&P Dow Jones Indices says this stock will add to the S&P 500 on September 20th. It's replacing Perigo, P-E-R-R-I-G-O, which will move to the S&P mid-cap 400. Match shares are up 50% since spinning off of IAC back in July 2020, but they're only up about 4% this year. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signing into law the state's sweeping election overhaul. This after months of protests from state Democrats. Texas joins at least 17 other states that have enacted new voting restrictions since the 2020 election. In New Jersey, President Biden getting a briefing on flood damage in the wake of Hurricane Ida. Later this afternoon, he'll see the damage firsthand, first in Manville, New Jersey, and then in New York City. And on the news, cleaning up the damage and getting ready for the next storms. That's after a third of Americans were hit by some sort of weather disaster in just the last three months. Tune in tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Cincinnati, research has begun on a new kind of COVID vaccine that will not require a needle. This vaccine will be delivered with a nasal spray. Cincinnati Children's Hospital is one of the locations doing clinical trials for the vaccine. From CNVAC, the study is set to last a year. Kelly, I'm all about anything being administered other than by needle. Yeah, I know. So that, we'll see how this study goes. And anything uh, to sort of solve COVID. Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Up next, Americans are ready for some football and for sports betting. As more states legalize it, we'll dig into the numbers and the trades just two days ahead of NFL season kickoff. And CNBC is going back to business. Tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time, as Americans are back from summer vacation and kids are even heading back to school, where are the opportunities for investors? A very special edition of Fast Money. We'll take a look. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Football kicks off this Thursday, and a new survey shows an increasing number of Americans are ready to wager as sports betting becomes legalized in more states. Contessa Brewer is here now with more of what's at stake for the gaming companies. Contessa? Well, Kelly, the NFL season kicks off Thursday. The number of sports bettors is expected to soar. A survey by the American Gaming Association released today shows 36 percent more people say they'll wager on a game this year compared to last year. That's 45.2 million sports bettors. 23 states and Washington, D.C. are uh, states that have launched sports betting. That's an increase of five states since last year. Nine more states have legalized it but not launched it though we are expecting South Dakota, Washington State, and Arizona to go live any day now. In fact, the Arizona Cardinals have their own gaming license, partnering with BetMGM. This is a real about-face for the NFL, going from a fierce fight against legalized sports betting a few years back, now to partnerships with Caesars and DraftKings and the data providers. And the AGA says 19.5 million people will place a bet online. Those are legal and illegal wagers. Kelly, those offshore illegal sites still are a massive obstacle for commercial operators. And this is a crowded space. It's like a gold rush every time another state legalizes sports gambling with this big, massive rush to stake a claim. One more note here. Amid all this excitement over college and pro football, the commercial casinos are fresh off a second quarter that smashed all-time records for gaming revenue, $13.6 billion. Wow. It's... Well, I guess if you're speaking on the gold rush, 
Right. There it is. Exactly. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer with some of the facts and figures. Meanwhile, Jeffries is out with a new sports betting themed survey just ahead of the NFL season, including its best bets for investors to cash in and a clue into who has the upper hand in attracting betters. David Katz is here with more. He is a Jeffries managing director. David, it's good to have you. Best position stocks. You think DraftKings, Caesars, MGM? Yeah, the way we've thought about it, just stepping back for a moment, Kelly, is uh, in order to, to, to succeed in this value chain, in this enterprise, you need market access, brands, and technology, and content. And the survey that we published a commentary on this morning highlights our thesis that the technology piece is so critically important uh, because it highlights consumers' uh, responses in terms of ease of use, being able to get into the app, deposit money, find the bets they want, and then withdraw their funds uh, over time. And, you know, what we discovered is that 52% of our respondents chose ease of use as a top uh, criteria in choosing an app. And that was up 10 percentage points from the last time we did this survey back in March ahead of March Madness. I also want to mention a couple of things that will distinguish this NFL season that you point out. It'll be the first one where we have Gosh, a bunch of states, Tennessee, Virginia, Arizona, Connecticut, Maryland, and you say potentially New York and Florida. Why only potentially New York and Florida? Well, those are in some stage of process of legalization. Uh, and New York has said that they would like to legalize uh, and figuring out what the rules, the boundaries, who the bidders are. There's been an RFP out. There have been some bids submitted uh, for that market, but no winners selected, no terms you know, Florida is in a, an active negotiation uh, with the Seminole tribe of Florida that, that own Hard Rock, uh, who would like to have exclusivity. Uh, the legislature is getting involved uh, as to whether there should be a statewide referendum to that end. All of those could be worked out quickly, as we've seen with political processes. They can take forever or they can end in an afternoon. Yeah. So we're watching both of those two with interest because they are among the four largest states in the U.S. in terms of betting. You know, uh, uh, from the very beginning, we need those states uh, to, to achieve the big numbers that we've put out. Let me ask a question as we talk about a lot of the platforms you think are well positioned and sort of the relative attractiveness. All of them are platforms I would think of. So I guess to put it differently, my question is who's not going to benefit, right? Which of these stocks do you think face more headwinds or might have reasons why they're not necessarily going to participate in a, you know, sports is back, betting is higher than ever kind of trade? Right. Look, I think one of the more interesting or actively debated stocks uh, that we talk about with investors is Penn National Gaming. They made a masterful acquisition of Barstool Sports uh, a year and a half ago now. Uh, and so they have clearly market access through Penn. They have an audience through Barstool that's extraordinary. But so far, they have not uh, shown the technology and the content in order to gain the kinds of market share uh, numbers that they put out as their targets. Uh, they're in the process of making an acquisition uh, of a publicly traded SCR, SCORE Media, and the degree to which that will bring the technology that they need to really be successful and how soon that will occur is one of the more actively debated uh, subjects with us and investors all the time, Kelly. Well, it's very well put and a reminder that just because there's a big audience doesn't mean you can immediately monetize that. So I'm also curious, I guess, finally speaking, how would you describe engagement with the NFL post-pandemic, you know, post a lot of the different societal changes we've been through the last couple of years? Is it as big as ever? I mean, we know that we are still dealing with a linear uh, to sort of uh, streaming TV transition. 
You know, there's just a lot of different things going on here. Has that made the NFL as sort of important as ever? Are there going to be as many eyeballs as ever? Or could we be facing sort of like the NASCAR perfect storm and heading into the Great Recession when the sport never recovered? Yeah. Now, what we know, we've seen estimates out there of 40 percent of all wagering happens on NFL football. Uh, what we've what we know is uh, that, you know, everyone, all operators have been gearing up uh, and advertising and marketing toward this football season. Since the last time we did this survey, uh, we had six percentage points of more people uh, willing to wager and wager on football than what we had seen just six months ago. I do think that this is setting up in a very bullish way. And frankly, you know, we've been telling investors, I don't, I'd want to own the whole group. But you did point out our favorites are, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel, who did extraordinarily well in our survey in terms of ease of use. Uh, and have been showing the market shares to back it up. And the integrated operators, MGM and Caesars, uh, who have a loyalty program, a casino audience, as well as that market access, and now the technology uh, to, to capture it that, that you know, we yeah. expect to see in the next several months. I'll say even I am I'm glad to welcome back football, something that feels like normal. You know, I'm just watching the UCLA it. game. And I was like, whatever's on, I'm 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 rooting. I'm picking a team and I'm rooting. I'm not betting yet. Maybe I'll get there. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. David Katz of Jeffries. Also a quick programming note, the 2021 NFL season kicks off with the defending Tampa Bay Bucks uh, Super Bowl champs hosting the Dallas Cowboys on Thursday night. That's on NBC. And the Los Angeles Rams will battle the Chicago Bears on Sunday night football to wrap up the weekend action. You can catch both matchups on NBC and on streaming on Peacock. Now, what do high-end chefs like David Chang and Marcus Samuelson have in common with Walmart and Kroger? We'll tell you that coming up. But first, the $3.5 trillion spending plan is going to cost taxpayers. With 80-plus tax hikes and changes in the bill, the three that will have the most impact, we'll discuss that next. Remember, you can always watch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following The Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. is expected to vote on the infrastructure bill before the end of the month, and President Biden's tax plan contains more than 80 tax hikes and changes. Robert Frank is here now with a look at the biggest three and how Congress is looking or working to limit those hikes. Robert? Hey, Kelly. Well, there are a lot of proposals right now floating around Washington, but for investors and companies, there are just three that matter when it comes to cost and the dollar impact. The biggest is the corporate tax hike. Biden proposing to increase that rate from 21% to 28%. It would raise over a trillion dollars in revenue just over the next decade. It's likely to be scaled back to, let's say, 25%, but that rate would only raise $400 billion or 40% less than the Biden rate. Then we have taxing overseas profits at a higher rate. That raises about $500 billion. The Tax Foundation saying the Biden plan could lead to more offshoring, not less, so the revenue would also be a lot less. Now, for investors and high earners, by far the biggest tax threat is capital gains. Biden proposing to raise the capital gains rate from 23.8 to 43.4 percent, and he wants to eliminate the step-up in basis to tax appreciated assets at death. Combined, those two changes would raise an estimated $322 billion. Right now, though, moderate Democrats in farm states already pushing back 
against step-up. Now, some in Congress also proposing new taxes on CEO pay, corporate buybacks, a special billionaire's tax, Kelly. All of this will come to a head for Washington and for markets in the next two to three weeks. You know, one that I, I often see these conflated, but they seem like one is a much bigger deal than the other. So the increase in capital gains tax, okay, we've been there before, I believe. We've seen rates that high in the past. Totally different issue than this issue with the step-up basis, where is this the same thing we were talking about the other day, Robert, where you would tax the amount of somebody's business net worth at death, even if they didn't sell it? I mean, that just feels like such a bigger step in deviation from what we've been doing than increasing the rate on capital gains. It is. And it was one of Biden's first proposals that he mentioned even during his campaign. And many thought, look, this is a benefit that largely helps the wealthy, so it shouldn't be a problem. But what we discovered in the debate and the research about this is that the farm states and many small businesses with family-owned companies that pass from generation to generation are opposing this and could be affected. So you're right, that piece is separate. For many cases, it is bigger and more important. And the reason many people oppose it is it would be the first time that we actually tax an unrealized gain, meaning you don't sell the asset, but you have to pay the tax just upon inheritance, even if the family right. doesn't sell it. So you're absolutely right. Those two will be split in half. So maybe in the end we get an increase in the capital gains tax, but not a change in the step up. Yeah, we'll see. I know they're looking to raise a lot of revenue. Robert, thank you for now. Your continued reporting on this. Robert Frank. Still ahead, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks is just a few days away. We're going to speak to the CEO of Tunnel to Towers, Frank Siller, about the loss of his firefighter brother, Stephen, that day and the work the foundation is doing to continue to help victims and their families. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation was started by the Siller family to honor their late brother, Stephen Siller, a New York City firefighter who lost his life on September 11, 2001. After strapping on his gear and running through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel to the World Trade Center, despite being done with his shift earlier that morning, the foundation aims to support our nation's first responders and service members through programs that build homes, pay off mortgages, and support remaining family members. To mark the 20th anniversary of the attacks, Frank Siller, the Tunnel to Towers CEO, is currently undertaking a 537-mile walk from Washington, D.C., stopping at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where United Flight 93 went down, and ending at Ground Zero to wait, raise awareness for the foundation. Joining me now is Frank Siller, the Tunnel to Towers chairman and CEO. It's good to have you, Frank. How's the walk going? It's going great, Kelly. Thank you so much for asking. I, uh, you know, I'm in the final stages. I'm actually in Newark, uh, New Jersey today. I just finished uh, the, uh, my, my walk for the, for the day. And um, I'm heading to uh, Jersey City tomorrow morning and onward to Jersey City to, uh, I'm gonna go over the Bayonne Bridge uh, and to Staten Island. And, and Staten Island, I'll be uh, walking through the neighborhoods where my brother grew up as a little boy. Um, that's where uh, my family is from. And then of course, I'm gonna stop at different firehouses that lost so many great uh, American uh, heroes uh, 20, 20 years ago. And I'll be ending on uh, September 11th, right at ground zero. I'll be walking through the same tunnel that my brother ran through uh, with his gear on. I'll be walking through with my sneakers and my family, you know, 
Um, when he came out the other side, he saw the Twin Towers on fire, burning, and people uh, uh, losing their lives, and, uh, and firefighters running in and giving their lives to save people. And that's what my brother did uh, 20 years ago. And I want to just honor uh, that great sacrifice he made and, and the sacrifice that so many great heroes made. Yes. Uh, that day. We're showing his photos now. You know, it, it does take a special kind of person to do that. I was going back and reading his background, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys were orphaned, is that right? Yes, Stephen uh, is the youngest of seven. Uh, when he was born, my, my father was uh, 49, my mother was 44, so he was our little miracle. And uh, But we were much older than him, and my parents died uh, by the time he was 10 years old. So we, we raised him. He was as much a son to us as he was a, a, a brother. He lived primarily, my oldest brother, Russ, and my sister-in-law, Jackie, in Rockville Center, and God rest my brother Russ's soul. He died about a year and a half ago. And um, and he grew up to be this outrageous human being. He was, he was <laughs> hysterical. He loved people. He loved doing things for people. Everyone thought he was the best friend. You wanna know why? Because he treated people like they were. And uh, he died the way he lived uh, for, for others. And look, you mentioned early on, uh, Kelly, what we do as a foundation. You know, we build smart homes for our country's most catastrophically injured service members. We take care of Gold Star families that, that are left behind, the young families. We either build them a home if they don't have one, and if they do, uh, we we um, we pay off their mortgage. And then, of course, for fallen first responders. Every year, we make sure that if they die for us in our community, that we're gonna take care of their families that are left behind. What's more important than that? And we ask people to join us on a mission. Go to tunneltotowers.org yeah. and donate as yeah. little as eleven dollars a month. And that's not asking too much. That's not asking too much to to make a promise that we're going to take care of these families that are left behind. Well, better than Netflix, uh, maybe <laughs> you you can switch your bills over for a couple of months. And and you guys are really carrying on a legacy. You know, it's a real tribute to your parents. Who I understand were lay Franciscans, and it kind of explains a lot of the character that your brother and and yourself here are displaying. 20 years on from 9-11, this foundation is doing so much. What do you think the next 10 to 20 years have in store? I mean, this, I'm sure, is a point at which many foundations have are looking back and saying, wow, two decades, really, of work that we're doing. A I mean, and it, it is work. It is a lot of work to do all of, all, all of this. So tell me where the foundation is going in terms of growth, new opportunities, and what you might say to others who have made it to this point and are trying to assess kind of where they go from here? Well, first I'd like to say that uh, our work is so far from not being over uh, because there's 200 police officers that are gonna die this year alone, 200. Many of them have young families. So uh, 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 we're gonna deliver 200 mortgage-free homes for the 20th anniversary. Uh, but if I had enough money, we could deliver 300, 400, 500, and it's still not enough. That's how many heroes give their life for our country and in our community all the time. So our work is always going to be cut out for us. But listen, Kelly, our first mission is to make sure we never forget. So uh, I've been going on this walk. I wanted to make sure that we shine a big light on the sacrifice that, that was made 20 years ago. But I want young families to understand that. You know, there was, we lost 2,977 Americans because somebody came over here and they tried to change our way of life. They hate America and they're gonna try to do it again. We don't want that to happen. We want people to know our history and, and part of the way you do that is you teach it to, to young kids. So we have the mobile exhibit that goes all over the United States. Uh, you know, don't be surprised if we have more of those uh, to teach the stories of 9-11. Of, of so our work is cut out for us the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It is always going to be around because there's always 
those who serve our country or serve our community that are willing to die for you and I, and we better take care of them. Yeah. As Americans, yeah. we better take care of the families that are left behind. You know, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I remember all of the never forget, you know, signages and campaigns. And I, I thought to myself, how could we ever forget? How is that, why would that even, how, how is that possible? And as I get older, I do understand that you really have to work to preserve these memories. So thank you for all the work that you're doing, Frank, and for the walk that you're on today, uh, for your joining us, and hopefully for many more prosperous decades to come. Thank you, and God bless you, and God bless America. And you as well. Frank Siller of Tunnel to Towers. And coming up on Power Lunch next hour, we're going to go to Ground Zero to speak with the architect who designed the 9-11 memorial. If you're wondering what it's like there these days, uh, take a look before we head to break at some data that we have from the Alliance for Downtown New York comparing retail locations in lower Manhattan before September 11th with where we were by the time that COVID hit. Pre-9-11, stores and bars or restaurants took up about 41% of retail space. By the time you get to COVID, restaurants had climbed to 52% and shops were down to about 31% of spaces. So certainly an area in transition and one that has come back to be just as vital as ever. We're gonna be back in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. We're keeping an eye on shares of Beyond Meat, which are flat today, down about 4% on the week and down about 25% over the past three months. The move comes as rival Impossible Foods chicken products hit grocer shelves and restaurant diners' plates. Kate Rogers is here with these important details. Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, it used to be all about the beef, but these plant-based meat companies are now focusing in on chicken. Impossible Foods today announced the launch of its meatless chicken nuggets in a handful of restaurants, including Fat Burger, Dog House, Marcus Samuelson's Red Rooster, and David Chang's Fugu Chicken Concept. Uh, the product is also coming to grocery stores by the end of the month. Walmart, Kroger, Albertsons, and ShopRite will all carry the nuggets, and Impossible says it plans to have them in 10,000 stores by the end of the year, which is a significant ramp up. The suggested retail price is $7.99 for about 20 nuggets. This all comes ahead of Impossible's reported IPO, which Reuters said in April could come sometime in the next 12 months. Beyond Meat, though, has also been leaning into expanding its chicken products, launching its new tenders in 400 restaurants in July, mostly independent chains on that one. This is an improved product after an initial launch of chicken several years ago. The company, though, has not revealed plans yet to offer in grocery stores, but CEO Ethan Brown has said that he does want to focus more on protein diversity. As always, though, the main difference in the two products is the ingredients. Impossible's nuggets are made from soy protein, while Beyond's nuggets are made from a mix of pea and fava bean protein. Kelly, back over to you. You know, I'm almost skeptical. I go, I could see if they get the burger right, but can they do the burger and the chicken? And, you know, if someone's out there doing mm -hmm. seafood. My real question, though, Kate, is are these nuggets actually deep fried, or is that also just a, a sort of sleight of hand? You know, because I could see it being a lot healthier if they can get around that issue, but not if they can't. They say, Kelly, less saturated fat, uh, less sodium, and I believe that they are able to be deep fried. Um, the grosser version is going to be prepared a bit differently than the restaurants because obviously they'll be cooked differently. I know a lot of people, you know, microwave or pop them in the oven at home. So I think it depends on how you prepare them. But as for how they taste, I haven't tried them yet. I'm definitely curious. If my kids will eat them, then I'm all in. I don't care what they're made. As long, you know. You're sold. <laughs> yeah, compared with the chips or whatever we ate for dinner last night. Uh, Kate, thank you very, very much. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers with the very thank latest. You. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this hour. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.